Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by virtue and glory, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up the word of truth this morning, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's guidance as we study this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful for the precious privilege that we have to hold in our laps your word, that we have faithful translations of the scripture and that we can read them on our own and that we may uh, be able to study them on our own as well and that your word will be used by God the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. Father, we thank you that as we humble ourselves under the teaching of your word that we are submissive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit who is using your word to correct us and to reprove us and to give us clear instruction as to how we are to think, speak, and live. And so, Father, we pray today that as we continue this study on how we as believers are to relate to one another in the body of Christ, that we may come to understand perhaps our role as roles and responsibilities as each individual within the body of Christ, that you may be glorified and that we may be used by you in this process of edification, spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we have been studying in the last couple of lessons what the Scripture teaches about our responsibilities to one another as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because at the instant of salvation, we have been placed into the body of Christ by the baptism, by the Holy Spirit, that we might have a unique witness as believers in this church age because God has given us unique privileges and spiritual assets in this church age. So we have been studying this on the basis of our passage in Ephesians 4, taking a step out to look at this topic uh, based on the last uh, clause of verse 25. For this reason, because you have already put off the lie, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And in this passage, neighbor is then defined through this uh, causal clause that follows, because we are members of one another. So in this passage, neighbor is clearly defined not as just anyone that comes into our periphery, but specifically to those who are members of the body of Christ. And so because we are members of one another, we have certain responsibilities. This contextually picks up from the idea mentioned earlier in verse 15 and 16, uh, but speaking the truth in love 
Notice the emphasis on, in both passages, talk about speaking the truth with our neighbor. The truth is not just speaking true things, but speaking on the basis of what the Scripture teaches, taking the instruction of Scripture, the doctrine that we have learned, and that forms the framework within which we communicate to one another. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, who is Christ. Christ is the authority over the body of Christ. And it is from whom, that is from Christ, that the whole body, that is all the individual members that are in the body of Christ, uh, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies and contextually every joint refers to every individual believer it is not talking about the pastor teacher it's not talking about the evangelist it's not talking about the missionary it is talking about each individual believer because going back to Ephesians 4:11 the spiritual gifts of pastor teacher and evangelist missionary is not a spiritual gift Missionary is a function of either being an evangelist or being a pastor teacher. And because their role is what? To equip the saints, the believers who are sitting in the pew, the individual members of the body of Christ, to equip them to do the work of ministry. So this work of ministry has to do with our ministry to one another. Romans 12, 4, and 5 emphasizes this same truth, that we have many members in one body. It's not talking about just a local congregation, but it's talking about the entire body of believers. We have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. It's like a team. And in any sports team, you can take as an analogy that you have different roles and responsibilities for each player on the team, and that they, when they are uh, putting into effect any particular play, each player has a role and responsibility, but if one of them messes up, then that impacts the whole play, and that impacts the whole player, uh, all of the other players, rather. So we being many with different roles and responsibilities, are one body of Christ, and we're individually members of one another. So this emphasizes the uniqueness of the body of Christ. It's not just an organization, the church. Now, a local church has organization, but it is an organism. We are a body of believers in Christ. And one of the things that has so impressed me as we've taken the time, really, I was surprised the other day realizing how many lessons we've gone through in Ephesians already, and especially the last uh, couple of chapters, uh, is the significance that Paul is placing upon the body of Christ. And that has deeply impressed me, because throughout this section, he's developing the importance of this one-another ministry And contextually, it goes back to understanding what comprises the body of Christ. It is that union of Jew and Gentile together. We are one in Christ. And that goes back to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, that emphasizes this role, this distinctive body. 
and that we have these responsibilities to one another. And contextually, what Paul is saying to the Ephesians is there should not be a basis of distinction between Jewish background believers and Gentile background believers, for we are all uh, together one another. But apparently there was some divisiveness because when we get into the uh, next section, uh, section in this this passage in chapter 4, there's issues with anger, there's issues with those who are stealing, there's issues with corrupt words coming out of your mouth and these other things. So there are clearly some divisive things that are going on within the body of these believers in Ephesus. So there's an emphasis on straightening out our thinking on our role to, to one another. This is the same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, that all the we are all members of one body. And so that distinction there emphasizes that we are an organism, not an organization. So it's emphasized in 1 Corinthians 12 at the beginning of the chapter and at the end. So this tells us that this is not some secondary doctrine, but this is a a crucial doctrine that is integral to our understanding of our identity. We have an identity because we are in Christ. That goes back to uh, what we learned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that we are to walk worthy of the calling. And I translated that of this exalted position that we are in. That is what we are called to as believers. That is the standard. And so we have to learn about these ministries to one another. So I'm just going to give a brief review of the previous six points that I've covered, and then we will go on, and I think we can probably cover the rest this morning. So we have this word, one another, and it refers to others in a group. So the though these letters that Paul writes and that Peter writes and John writes are addressed to local congregations, and in some of the instances we know for sure that they were what they called uh, uh, cyclical or encyclical letters, that they were supposed to be read at Ephesus and then co- copies made passed on to the other churches in the area. The, these churches are the... Uh, for the most part, the seven churches that are mentioned in cha- Revelation chapters 2 and 3, those are just some of them. But these epistles were passed around, and eventually they were collected together, and we eventually have them brought together and recognized as as, as the New Testament. So there's, they address the, the operation of the local church, as well as to other believers that are not maybe not part of this local church, but they are part of the body of Christ, people we know who are functioning in other other congregations. The main command is to love one another. As we've seen what Jesus said in John thirteen, thirty four and thirty five, that we are to love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. So that's the analogy. That's the pattern. We will never achieve that. But if we have that as our goal, that perhaps we will come close. The new commandment I give you that you love one another, and by this, that is that love for one another, 
that we should demonstrate that we are his disciples, not just believers, but disciples, those who are growing and maturing. And we know from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit, that the first facet of the fruit of the Spirit, because remember, it's not the fruits of the Spirit. There's one fruit, one uh, singular noun there is love. So this love that he's talking about is produced by the God, the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can manufacture on our own. It goes above and beyond the best that human love can ever produce. So we are to love one another. And all of these other one another commands are just different ways that this love for one another are are manifested. And I've talked about these circles of friendship, uh, that you could call it circles of intimacy, because as we look at some of these commands, uh, admonishing one another, encouraging one another, some of these different commands, uh, what we see is that that you can't just utilize all of these to people you don't know. You can't just walk up to some stranger and try to correct something you see in their life or their behavior. There needs to be a context for it, and that context is a relationship. And we're, we're funny people because our we, we tend to allow some people uh, within a closer circle of intimacy than other people. And you may think that you are at a certain level of intimacy with someone, but you're really not. I remember some many years ago, I was uh, at a church where I was working on my uh, on a pastoral internship uh, here in Houston, and um, I was working in an office where everybody in the office went to the same church. And there was a guy in there that I had known him and his family off and on through uh, Camp Penile for many, many years. And he made a comment to me about our pastor one day. And he said, I've been trying to get close to him, and getting close to him is like getting close to a porcupine. Now, I didn't say anything because I didn't feel like I had the relationship with him that um, that he thought he should have with the pastor. But I didn't find that to be true about the pastor at all, that he and I were had developed a very close friendship. And uh, he had gone to seminary just a few years and graduated just a few, couple of years before I started, but he had a background in ministry. And so we had lunch every week, and, uh, it, you know, I was much closer and remained close to him through um, the rest of his life. But this other person was never going to be let in because there were trust issues, which I clearly understood, and he was not going to be let into a closer circle of intimacy with that pastor. And that's true for all of us in all kinds of relationships. And so we we develop a, a, a sensitivity to that, or we should, as we as we grow uh, spiritually, that there are these distinctions. So we have those who are just acquaintances. They may be neighbors, co-workers. As we spend time together, we may discover that we share a common interest or hobby, and so we begin to do things together. And then uh, as we develop, that develops into a friendship. 
and we talk with them frequently, spend time with them, and that leads to a greater level of intimacy. And then the inner circle A is people who are very close. We probably only have, if you have five, that's amazing. But we probably only have two or three that are really within that circle. And they may, it may involve different, different areas of our life. Some may be in relation to our career. Some may be in relation to church. Some may be in relationship to other aspects of our personal life. And so we have to be uh, sensitive to that. So as we grow as believers, as we get to know one another, then we have opportunities to minister to one another, which is one of the goals of the teaching ministry of the church, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, which I've already mentioned. We also looked at serving one another, that through love we serve one another. So that love is, this is Galatians 5, 13, which is just a few passages before the command to walk by means of the Spirit and the result of which is the fruit of the Spirit. So what Paul is saying in that whole context is this love that we have to serve one another is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is supernaturally developed within us. Number, point number four, we looked at these passages in a little more detail about being members of one another, that this is the result in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen of the fact that we have been baptized into one body, that is, we are identified at the instant of salvation with uh, the body of Christ. We are placed in Christ, the new man. So by being placed into Christ in the new man at the instant of salvation, we have put off the old man, we have put off the lie, and so now we have to minister to one another on the basis of the truth of Scripture. So we've studied all of that in detail. The fourth point is that we're members of, continues to be the members of one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and 26. We are to encourage one another. I spent the whole lesson the last time on this and understanding these words because the word parakaleo is a word that has a wide range of meaning. And so we have to come to understand what what that range of meaning is because it's used with some of these different senses. And we are to comfort one another in one sense. We have the example in First Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul uses the phrase comfort one another in relation to the doctrine of the rapture at the time of death, that when somebody has, has died, then we encourage those who are left behind with the, with the truth of the rapture and that one day that we will be uh, joined together. The comforting comes from the truth of God's word. But the time to do that may not be at the time of death or even the week of death because people are going through uh, grief and they may not, it just may not be the right time. So we have to learn to understand that. We are to comfort one another. He says in 4.18, and again in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another. 
And so we took time to look at that, that that word uh, parakaleo has the idea of exhorting or strongly encouraging or urging someone to do something, but it also has the idea of comforting. So we have to understand this is a broad word, and in different contexts, we in some places are going to urge someone to do something. In other contexts, we are going to just simply be comforting them uh, with the word of God. Now we come to the sixth point, and that is from Romans 12:10. Actually, there are two one another's in this passage. The first is that we are to be kindly affectionate are devoted to one another. This is a word that is only used at this time in the New Testament, and it's a compound word. It is the word philostorgos, and it is compound of the word philos, the noun for love that is different from agape. Agape is a much broader term for love, whereas philos emphasizes an intimacy, and it emphasizes a little bit more of the emotional side. Uh, A close friendship would be uh, indicated by philos. In fact, the noun form is often used of of a friend. So that that has that concept, and then the second concept is storgos, from the uh, word from which we get our word stork. And I was amazed the first time I went to Greece that as we drove along the roads, we would see on the top of telephone poles these huge nests where storks would make their nests. We don't have anything like that here in Texas, but storks are very common there, and the mother is often demonstrates quite close care for the young. And so that became a a form of love, the uh, nurture of, of a mother. So this word is put together to indicate familial care for one another. So it has the idea of being devoted or being loving. Uh, in different translations, it's translated as loving dearly or loving warmly or loving tenderly, or just being affectionate. And it's only used this one time in the New Testament, but it's frequently used in non-biblical Greek literature in wills to in the designation of an heir, someone who is uh, loved by the person who who has died. So this word, be kindly affectionate or devoted to one another, I think is really developed in, in a little more understandable way in the second in the second part. To some degree, that is uh, appositional, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So what we see here is that this word indicates a, a mutual love. It's used of a ruler's love for his people, of a pastor's love for his people would also apply. It's used for uh, the love of a dog for his master, which I've always thought is a uh, really good illustration of unconditional love because no matter what, uh, how obnoxious the master may be, the love of a pet is often quite unconditional. So this is the idea. And then the seventh point is the second aspect of this verse. 
that we're to give preference to one another in honor. In other words, we're not always seeking to be at the head of the line. We're not always seeking to be the one getting the attention. That's often the result of approbation lust. But we are uh, giving others the opportunity rather than ourselves. In the main Greek lexicon, it says this is this difficult pass. In this difficult passage, uh, Romans 12:10 is understood by the versions. That means in the more ancient translations, the Old Latin, the Vulgate, and the Armenian translation, it has the idea of trying to outdo one another in showing respect for one another. Sort of a competition as to who has the greatest. Uh, understanding of good manners and consideration for others, uh, outdoing one another in giving others the opportunity rather than seizing, seizing it for ourselves. And so uh, the other translations indicate the idea of esteeming one another more highly or um, uh, caring for one another. All of these emphasize the idea of really behind it is humility, which is the eighth point. We see this phrase used, I think it's somewhat idiomatic, but we see it used in a number of passages in Scripture. Romans twelve sixteen says that we are to be of the same mind toward one another. And that may seem an odd construction. We are to think the same thing. Well, what exactly does that mean, to have the same mind as one another? In Romans 15, 5, it's translated, be like-minded towards one another. Well, what exactly does that mean? Because we don't all think the same thing. We don't have all the same opinions. What in the world is this talking about? And I think that we get this in... uh, some other passages, for example, Romans 12, 6, 12, 16 says, be of the same mind to one another. Romans 15, 5, be like-minded. But in Philippians 2, this is a very important passage. We'll spend some time on it when I get there on, on Thursday nights. But Paul is talking to them because there's a problem in the Philippian congregation. There seem to be certain divisions, some divisiveness that's going on because he spends quite a good deal of time uh, talking about this. And later on, he directly addresses two women in the congregation because they're not getting along together and it's impacting the whole congregation. But here he says in verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. So here in this passage, we're going to understand what this whole idea of the same mind, like-mindedness really is. And it has to do with humility. It says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So here it's emphasizing a unity, thinking the same thing in certain areas, having the same love. And so he explains that more when you get to verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish conceit. Self-centeredness is at the core of our sin nature. Self-centeredness is part of arrogance. We are self-absorbed from the instant we take our first breath coming out of the womb. 
and just spend some time around a newborn baby and you will discover that it is now all about the baby and not about us anymore. So we have this orientation from our sin nature to put ourselves as the focal point and says, let nothing be done through selfish conceit. In other words, we have to examine our motives that we're not doing it for some sort of self-promotion or self-aggrandizement, but we are doing it to serve the Lord. doesn't mean we shouldn't do it if we have the wrong motive. It means we correct our motive, and we're involved because uh, we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Now, that's how the King James translated this, and in both Hebrew and in Greek, humility is expressed through this idiom of being low. In other words, not being high in our own estimation, but putting others first. And he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So when we look at this phrase here at the end of verse 3, that we esteem others better than himself, that is the essence of what we're learning when it says in, in Romans that we're to give preference to one another. We are to esteem others as better than ourselves. In verses uh, 4 and 5, which are at the bottom of this slide, it says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Think in terms of you get involved in certain situations, and maybe you think, well, I can benefit because of X, Y, or Z. And then you think, well, as I think about it, so-and-so that I know, this person or that person, will really benefit from this. I need to let them know about that. We're thinking about others before we think about ourselves. And then we get this important command in verse 5, let this mind, what mind? That like-mindedness, that same way of thinking, that way of thinking where you're looking out for the interests of others first, let that mentality that way of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what he does with that verse is he introduces the example of humility, that the humble example is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this introduces one of the most important passages in the New Testament on the the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity. And he's, Paul writes who, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God. Now what that means is that he has the same essence as God, did not consider it robbery or a thing to be grasped after, which is equality with God. Adam and Eve were offered the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the bait? You will be like God. And they grasped after it. They gr- went for it. But he says, Jesus, who is fully God, doesn't see that that's something to grab hold of. He doesn't see that as something that he is to uh, keep, but he is willing to add to himself true humanity. He, Verse 7, he made himself of no reputation 
taking the form of a bondservant, and that's explained as coming in the likeness of man. He took on true humanity, added that to his undiminished deity, and he became a servant to serve all of humanity by going to the cross. In verse 8, this is made clear. Being found in appearance as a man, key phrase here, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Rather than thinking, I'm in heaven, I have all the rights and privileges of deity, why should I put myself in a position where I will then experience the flaws and the uh, frailties of the human race and where I will be rejected and where I will go through the uh, pain and horrors and torture of crucifixion for the salvation of the world? But he is not thinking of himself. He is thinking of those he loves. And so this is the ultimate example of biblical love, of the kind of love that only God, the Holy Spirit, can produce in us. And the exaltation comes as a result of God exalting him, not self-exaltation. So we are to love one another, and we do that, one way we do that is by showing preference to one another. Now, under the ninth point, we are to build up one another. That takes us back to the passage we've been studying in, in Ephesians 4, that we are to edify uh, one another. We're used in that process, every joint, what every joint supplies. This is not only stated in Ephesians 4, it is stated in Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. That's a command. That's why I have these exclamation points in there from what I copy from, and that's to indicate that is a, a, a an imperative verb. That's a command. We are to pursue the things which make for peace. Now, we're not always going to be able to achieve peace with some people. Some believers and some unbelievers are just going to hold on to mental attitude sins of uh, lack of forgiveness, mental attitude sins of anger, resentment, uh, unwilling to forgive. But we need to do what we can on our part so that resolution can take place. We are to pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another. We are to pursue the things which will bring spiritual growth and edification to other believers. And that edification is used as an uh, an idiom, as a picture of growth. As you build a house, step by step, phase by phase, we are we grow spiritually. And as we grow uh, spiritually, uh, God uses other believers in that process. It is primarily done through the uh, pastor, teacher, the evangelist, those who equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That is the process of edification. But it doesn't leave out the role of other believers. How many times in our lives had we uh, 
heard other believers just uh, maybe remind us of a verse at a particular time in our life, and it's just the verse we need to hear, or we get a letter or maybe an email from somebody, and they just include uh, a verse. I remember recently getting an email from someone, and they had a verse in their signature line that I hadn't thought of in a while, and I just thought that was just a great verse and to be reminded of what was in that verse. Things like that edify one another. And so those are ways in which we uh, we fulfill this. In Ephesians 4.12 and 4, 4.16, we've seen this already in this context. In verse 12, the role of the pastor, teacher, and evangelist is for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, and ultimately for the edifying, the building up, the spiritually maturing aspect uh, for those in the body of Christ. And then in verse 16, the verse I've already mentioned, what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part, every believer, does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. It's the result of the uh, operation of love to one another in the body of Christ that truly encourages, comforts, edifies, teaches, and we pray for one another. All of those are involved in that, and the Holy Spirit uses that in our own spiritual growth. The tenth point is one that is a little difficult for some people to put together and to actually apply. It takes a certain amount of spiritual maturity to correct another believer, and in that, uh, an admonishment is used in that way. Romans 15, 14, Paul says, notice how many of these one another passages are at the end of Romans. Now, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also, notice, knowledge precedes the action of admonishment, and that just isn't um, just academic knowledge of what the Scripture says, but this is dealing with a knowledge that involves spiritual growth as well. You know, it's always funny. You see immature believers will see something like this, and they will uh, see things that need to be corrected, uh, like a sophomore, a wise fool, and they apply it wrongly. Uh, admonishing others is something that needs to be done uh, cautiously, because people are not always ready to listen to the wisdom that falls so easily from our lips. And we need to make sure that we are, have the right context and the right level of trust in order to, uh, in order to do that. So uh, they are also to admonish one another. Now this word for admonishment is the Greek word, verb, nutheteo, the first syllable of that, N-O-U, is from the Greek word nous. It is something that is addressed to the thinking, not the emotions. 
how often do you hear sermons that are supposedly uh, edifying that are really addressed to the emotions as motivation? Our motivation should be that which is true, that which is correct. And so the appeal should be to the intellect as understood within the framework of someone who is walking by the Spirit, not to the emotions. But you often hear that. You hear that, um, you hear that often in uh, messages related to giving, taking up the offering. And I've been in churches that have seen some really uh, extreme forms of guilt manipulation in order to separate people from their money. Uh, but this is addressed to the mind, and it is a word that is used uh, sometimes in terms of correction and instruction, and it's frequently used with the idea of just warning somebody about something in their uh, in their life. For example, in Acts 20.31, Paul says, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He's talking about his uh, ministry with the church in Ephesus. And he warned everyone, and he warns them with tears. He is and he sees the seriousness of the situation. As I said that, a something came to my mind that I think I'll relate, for at least for posterity's sake, because I think it's an important thing. A lot of you don't understand this. But some years ago, when I was first out of seminary and uh, was pastoring, Dallas Seminary had uh, sort of a continuing education uh, seminar each summer. And I went back one summer. I wanted to take a couple of the short courses they had. And one of my, one of my classmates who was a couple of years ahead of me, but he had gone to a doctrinal church in, um, in Lufkin, had grown up there and come out of that church. And he was now pastor of a church in Missouri somewhere. This was 40 years ago. And he told me, he said, he said, I've got an elder in my church who was discipled by Bob Thiem when he was just still in seminary and was the interim pastor at Reinhardt Bible Church in Dallas. And he told me one of the most amazing stories. He said he remembered that when uh, that every Monday night after church, and Reinhardt Bible Church was a church that had been on the, had actually set a date for their very last Sunday. And uh, they needed a pulpit fill for the last two or three months, and so they had gone to Dallas Seminary, and John Walvoord recommended Pastor Theme as a senior at Dallas Seminary to take that pulpit. And so this guy said... We would go out. He would take us out on Monday nights, and we would visit those who had come to church. And if they were not saved, he said, I have seen Bob Theme on his knees weeping with people to trust in Christ as Savior. Now, that's not the image many of you have, and that's why I thought it was important to tell that, that episode, because that's the way he was. 
and he had a great compassion for people. And that's what Paul is saying here is that he, he warned people, warned people about the consequences of rejection of the gospel and rejection of truth, and it was accompanied with tears. They were not phony tears, which is what you often see today is manufactured emotion in the pulpit, but this was a genuine emotion. In 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul also says, I do not write these things to shame you, even though people might think that admonition is a, you're, you're, you're just correcting them for the sake of correction. He said, I write these things to warn you as my beloved children. In Colossians 1.28, him we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, or that is mature in Christ. So this idea is that teaching includes warning, the consequences of failure to grow spiritually, the consequences of failure to respond to the gospel, to warn people of that. Colossians 3.16 is something that, a lot of people in our generation need to take uh, heed to. Paul gives the initial command is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So that is the foremost thing, is the word of Christ needs to be assimilated into our souls and into our thinking. And as a result, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So both teaching, I should have underlined both teaching and admonishing, apply to the object of the phrase, which is through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I remember some years ago reading the note that Dr. Ryrie put in his study Bible at this point, he was always a master of brevity, and he said, most songs that are sung in most churches today do not teach or admonish anyone in anything. And that is very accurate. He doesn't need to address the issue of the form that it's in, in terms of the music that usually flows out of a non-biblical worldview, but that just the shallowness the ins- what, what would the word be? They're insipid. The words are insipid. So would there be a word insipid- insipidity? The uh, insipidness of the words is not going to teach anybody anything. Repeating the same phrases over and over again. Last week when Wayne talked, he taught about how so many people get the idea that just singing praise the Lord praises the Lord. But it doesn't, as I've taught also many times. So the what we sing has to have profound content. And even this morning as we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I noticed in the third verse, I think it was, that he talked about God our King. It's not a verse that is addressed to Jesus at the time of his birth as the King. Notice that. It is talking about God. God is the sovereign king over his creation. 
but Christ is to be the king, the messianic king over the messianic kingdom, which has not yet come into existence. And so we have to be careful with that. So First Corinthians, I mean First Thessalonians 5:12 and 5:14, Paul says, "And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you." So that's talking about the role of the pastor teacher or the role of the uh, uh, evangelist. Part of their role is to admonish, to correct uh, through the Word of God and giving instruction. In 5.14, he goes on to say, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and uphold the weak. Be patient with all. So you warn those who are unruly. In 2 Thessalonians 3.15, Paul says, Yet do not count him, that is the person who's not uh, not working, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him, as a brother. So this would include correction and instruction. The eleventh point is that we are to accept one another. We all have flaws. We all have failures. There's not one person here that doesn't have a robust sin nature. Now, I know sometimes we joke and we say that so-and-so doesn't have a sin nature, but they just hide it well. We all have sin natures, and we all have areas where we don't do very well. And we are to accept one another on the pattern just as Christ also received us. He died for our sins, and he accepts us flaws and sins at all. We don't have to achieve a certain level of morality or spirituality before we can be saved. No one can do that because all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. So we are to accept each other on the basis of grace, meaning we accept them just as God, for Christ's sake, has accepted them and forgiven them. The twelfth point is that we are to have the same care for one another or the same concern for one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. This verb, merimnao, is translated care, concern, or even be anxious. That's the word that is used by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care, care, your anxieties, your worries, your concerns upon him because he cares for you. So that's what this is talking about. We should have that uh, concern for others for one another, caring for them, worrying, as it were, being anxious. Thirteenth, we are to be kind to one another, forgiving one another. John thirteen, fourteen, as Jesus is teaching uh, through washing the feet, he says, talking about the imagery here, that that is forgiveness. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet as a picture of spiritual cleanliness or forgiveness you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's using the imagery there to say, just as I have forgiven you, you need to forgive one another. This is made clear in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. The word here is charizomai, being gracious, graciously forgiving one another. Even as God, notice that comparison again, just as God 
in Christ Jesus forgave you. That none of us are any better than anyone else, but God forgave us because of what Christ did on the cross. Colossians 3.13 echoes the same thought, that if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We have to have Christ-like forgiveness for one another. Fourteen, we're to think about one another and how to stir up or to encourage others to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider, let us think about, let us focus on uh, one another in order to stir up, to encourage, to love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting, that is warning, encouraging, strengthening one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Under 15, we're to put up with one another. We're to show tolerance, real tolerance. Tolerance doesn't mean we validate it. It means that we are going to put up with one another in love. This is Ephesians 4.2 and also Colossians 3.13. Both passages use the terminology bearing with one another, which has that idea of putting up with one another. Uh, Sixteen, we are to submit to one another. That means not always getting our way, not always insisting our way, not having the last word, always being willing to uh, go along with others when it may not be the first thing that we want to do. So you have uh, Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the others. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Notice how all of this goes back to humility, which is part of grace orientation, not putting ourselves first. 17, confess to one another, which doesn't mean to get up publicly and announce our sins to one another as some churches practice. It is that when we have offended another person, that we should go to them in privacy and we should be willing to uh, admit our wrong and apologize to them, humble ourselves. And that is, um, is, is what it means. It doesn't mean to publicly uh, flagellate ourselves for our failure. So James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another. Contextually, this is when we have offended another believer. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, that's not the word for physical healing. That is a word for deliverance uh, in terms of sanctification. We are to pray for one another, James 5.16. At the end of that verse, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We are to pray for one another. Now, there's a couple of things we're not to do to one another. Number one, we're not to judge one another. That means don't evaluate other people's motives. Don't get caught up in in, uh, other people's failures. Romans 4.13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. James 4.11 says, Don't speak evil of one another. 
He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer or a one who applies the law. James wrote very, very early. He wrote in the early 40s. It was probably the first epistle written in the New Testament. Um, when he speaks of the law, he's just speaking of the instruction of the scriptures. The word Torah, we often think, means law, which it does. But it also means instruction. Uh, and so don't get that legalistic sense here. And James 5, 9, don't grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. So we are to not be in the business of evaluating the motives of others. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We are to be open and honest. Third, do not render evil to one another. First Thess 5.15, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And that should remind you of how I've defined love, that it is seeking the best for the object of love. And best is not defined in terms of what we think is best, but what God says is best. So we have to understand who God is and what his plan is to be able to truly love one another. So with that, as we come to the conclusion of verse 25, it sets the stage for some uh, specific uh, commands and application in the next uh, in, in the next six verses, which really doesn't stop with the chapter division, but c- continues into um, chapter five. So all of this is part of the one of the greatest uh, chapters, two, two chapters on the spiritual life in the New Testament with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have your revelation to teach us about our new identity in Christ and that what is expected of us, now that we are part of your royal family, we are part of the body of Christ, and we have been given this new identity, and we have been given uh, a, a, a new code of conduct that is to... Uh, characterize those who are a part of Christ's body. Father, we pray that you would help us to be reminded of these things as God the Holy Spirit brings it to our mind that we may apply these things and that through that God the Holy Spirit will transform our thinking, transform our, our words, and transform our actions. Father, we pray for those who are listening to this message who may have never trusted in Christ as Savior, that this is not a way to salvation. This is the way one who is saved ought to live. That salvation comes not by works that we do, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, as Paul says, but according to your mercy, that you have provided a free gift of salvation because Christ did all the work. It was finished on the cross. And so by simply trusting in his substitutionary atonement and his payment for our sins, we have everlasting life that can never be lost. So, Father, we pray that you would drive these spiritual truths home to each one of us and that we may think upon it and that God the Holy Spirit will use it 
to bring us closer to the image of Christ in each of our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.